Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. So today we're talking with Corey Feist. He is the CEO of the UVA Physicians Group, and he's also the president and co-founder of the Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. And we're going to have a fairly wide-ranging talk with him about how we can bring some change to healthcare. Let's have a listen. Corey, thank you very, very much for joining us. I guess we should dive in the deep end and ask you to give us a brief background about yourself, how you are where you are, and how you and Jennifer established the foundation that you run. Thank you so much for having me today. This is such an important topic, and uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. I'm the chief executive officer of the University of Virginia Physicians Group and the co-founder and president of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. I began my journey into healthcare over 20 years ago in the capacity as an attorney and uh, have spent the lion's share of my professional career at the University of Virginia Health System in a variety of capacities as an attorney, as a chief operating officer, and most recently as the chief executive officer. And on that journey, I have spoken with countless physicians and advanced practice professionals and nurses. And particularly in the last five to seven years, have heard this increasing drumbeat around the work environment. And so roughly five years ago, when I became the CEO of the physician group, I started conversations around ways to improve, in that case, the well-being of the workforce through known interventions focused on burnout, really that most highly correlated with the electronic medical record, focusing on optimization, enhanced training, embedding builders locally, uh, resources that while the electronic medical record in my environment had been optimal for, or not optimal, had been implemented uh, about a decade before, had never really been optimized for the user. Other things that we used were in the ambulatory environment, particularly in the family medicine area, we started a team-based care model. And a lot of those interventions really focused, um, were, were, were very effective in small doses, but I did not have an opportunity really to scale, um, scale them as far as I wanted. Um, but we've made progress and we continue to make efforts. In April of 2020, uh, my professional and personal life converged when Dr. Lorna Bree and my sister-in-law uh, my wife's closest life partner next to me uh, died by suicide after a short bout of COVID and then going back to the emergency department in Manhattan where she was the medical director and an attending physician and trying to take care of the onslaught of really, really sick people. And given her recent COVID experience and her and the real trauma that she experienced trying to, ta- to manage the OR, manage the ED, and manage the patients, uh, mostly not to be, you know, to be unsuccessful in that, particularly early days of the pandemic. Uh, she became so overwhelmed and despondent that we had to extract her from New York, um, bring her to Charlottesville, Virginia, where we live, and have her admitted to the inpatient psych unit. 
And when she was admitted to the inpatient psych unit, she was very clear with us this was going to negatively impact her career, her ability to achieve all of her hopes and dreams that she had previously not really had much trouble doing, working very, very hard to achieve her life goals of being an emergency room physician in New York. And so after Dr. Breen died, we, Jennifer and I, were overwhelmed with more of an outpouring of real cries for help by the healthcare community than we'd ever known were really there. It was like we were walking on a beach and thought that all the, all the rocks were beautiful and then you flipped them all over and they were not. And so even though Jennifer grew up in a house of doctors and I had been in the healthcare community for over 20 years, this deep, dark secret around um, this personal sacrifice that physicians, nurses, advanced practice professionals make to their own detriment um, became ever present. And Jennifer and I, shortly after Dr. Breen died, we founded the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation with the focus of improving the well-being of the workforce and decreasing burnout and other contributors to, uh, you know, in some cases, suicide, in other cases, depression, in many cases, leaving the profession. So pause there for a breath, but that's, that's been our journey so far. And uh, we founded our, our uh, Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation, June of 2020. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that background. I think most of our listeners will probably have at least some familiarity with it, but hearing it from you is so powerful. There were so many things that converged in that tragic event. I appreciate that you are here with us to share what you've learned from it and the lessons you've taken away to give back. That's really profound. So, you know, I think what you said was that over the last five to seven years, so it's not just in the context of the pandemic. And one of the things I really worry about is that we're going to say, oh, things were terrible during the pandemic. But once we fix that, everything will be okay. And I would just love to get your perspective as the CEO at UVA, you know, not, not necessarily from that position, but from what you've seen in that position, how healthcare has changed, and maybe what, what patterns you've noticed. It's an excellent question. And it's one that I'm committed to not end that the work cannot end when the pandemic ends. In fact, what we know about trauma is that when the stimulus or the traumatic experience ends is actually when you need the most help, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> I believe that we are on the precipice of a broader conversation in healthcare given this mass work walkout of nurses, um, early retirements of physicians. In, uh, I'm not sure if there's been increased suicide, but I have seen an increased reporting of suicide. I think we are all on notice. And as an attorney, I have to use that phrase a lot. We are all on notice that the current state must change. In or, the, the last 200 years of the healthcare industry and the healthcare delivery, they've got to, they've got to change. I also understand that this is a, an enormously complex thing, and a lot of it is embedded in culture. A lot of it is embedded in the way that the entire institution of healthcare is paid. 
uh, the regulations. So there, this is a multi-layered onion we have to peel back. Some of the observations I would make, though, are that we have to, we cannot let studying this to the degree that we do in academic medicine, in particular, be the um, be what holds us back. We cannot wait for perfection before we start, and so. There are a number of things that every health system in this country can and should be doing right now that are much easier than some of those longer term operational changes that need to happen. And so uh, my my hope and my plan is that if we can use the pandemic and the, the, the visibility of this issue now as the catalyst for widespread change of some of maybe the easier things mm-hmm. that we will create a snowball effect in the opposite direction, maybe, um, that will serve as a catalyst. Um, I also believe, and I've said this, frankly, since, since this happened to Dr. Breen, many other industries and many other companies have prioritized the well-being of their workforce as their, as their number one reason for being. And I think that healthcare has completely skipped it over. It's focused on patient-centered goals, which, while um, laudable, are not are, are are ignoring the impact of the caregivers. And um, one of my favorite cases in business school was to study Southwest Airlines, which entire entire reason for being is to take care of their workforce. And they said basically, we prioritize our workforce. The customers will be happy. I don't know anybody who doesn't like flying on Southwest Airlines. So, you know, if we can start with those kind of things, I think it'll be important. So I think part of this, uh, Wendy, is we've got to just start, but we have to start at scale if we can with some of the um, more easy to implement things to start to turn this tide back in the opposite direction or maybe just a different direction than the direction it's been. You know, one of the reasons that I feel like healthcare has had the opportunity to focus on patients instead of the workforce is that the workforce has always been this kind of infinitely expansile thing where if there's a gap, the workforce is going to is going to fill it in because of the oath that we take to put our patients first. And so if there was short staffing for certain reasons, nurses and doctors would step in to make sure the patients didn't fail. But I think we're getting to a point where folks have said, I can't, I can't stretch any further. I was stretched as far as I could go before this started. Absolutely. And, you know, from a, from a, I'm going to put on my MBA hat for a minute, from a strategic perspective, if all compensation in this country, whether you're a nurse or a doctor is benchmarked on some kind of similar bell curve and you know you can move people around on that bell curve a little bit but and maybe that's a differentiator but i think a greater strategic differentiator for our healthcare systems in this country are to create a place where the well-being of the workforce is prioritized and therefore the workforce can thrive and then people will flock to those organizations over organizations that don't do that and so and and i think that now uh, you know with this great nursing walkout that i'm observing across the i don't across the industry yeah. i don't know any health system in this country that has sufficient nursing now i don't know that you know it's probably not sufficient physician workforce but i think that the nursing workforce in particular is more magnified um 
you know, yes, you can pay a traveler and you, there's huge bonuses and sign-ons, but people are not going to stay around. And so I think we have, it's incumbent on the industry to recognize that in order to, to recruit and retain the best clinicians, they have to redesign this mousetrap. They have to do it in a way that prioritizes the workforce first. So, Corey, you mentioned um, a couple of minutes ago sort of some small wins, right? The things that are manageable and doable, and then some bigger issues, which are obviously the more structural things and uh, big challenges. Could you be a little more specific and, and, and give us some ideas about what those small wins should be and what the structural wins should be? Absolutely. So I, I know that, I mean, let's go where, the, where at least the data shows right now. The electronic medical record is one area that the data is very strong in. And because almost every health system in this country is on an electronic medical record, which has very, you know, which has reportable data on how long physicians and nurses are in the electronic medical record. To me, that is a, that is, that is a base hit, if you will. It's an easy yep. single in it. And, but I don't know that every health system in America is really looking at their reports and saying, okay, let's look where outliers are. When I look at the results across, across my institution of nationwide burnout surveys, and then I overlay those same results with the bell curve of who's, who's working before and after work, it's the same report. So you don't have to do a separate burnout or a, a <laughs> survey. You've got it in your hands. So the number yep. one is you've got to look at the electronic medical record. It is certainly not the only thing, but it is just an easy, it's an easy starting place. Mm -hmm. um, the second place that I think that organizations need to look is in, um, is, is with helping with you know, scribing and you know, there's a lot of artificial intelligence. Just let's look at any, any areas, again, I'm sticking with the electronic medical record for just a moment, but I'll, I'll move, I promise, um, where you can take administrative burden out of the hands of the physicians and put it on someone else. So sure. scribing is a great example. Um, I also think that hospitals and health systems need to incorporate into their decision making the thought of what what is this what is the impact of this decision going to be on the workforce? Are we asking the doctors and nurses to do one right. more thing? And right. is it value added? I'm a huge lean management fan where you know you're looking at value. And we've always talked about healthcare in the context of or most recently, not always, talked about healthcare in terms of the value to the patient. We need to look at it at the value to the clinician. Is the physician's uh, is this valuable to the physician to ask uh, Wendy to be on the phone with an insurance company for an hour and a half trying to get a pre-authorization. I'm going to guess not, but is there another way to do that? So, so electronic yeah. medical record, things like scribes, um, looking, looking at your policies and saying, where are we adding burden that is non-value added to the workforce? Wendy, you so had a question. Yeah, there. I want to I ask you one question about scribes. Please. Because I feel like when we add scribes, that has the potential to change the dynamic in the clinic. But it also, I worry even more that once we put the scribes there, it gives the EMR companies or it gives IT the opportunity to say, well, we fixed that problem. So we don't actually need to work on the EMR. We don't actually need to make you an intuitive user interface. We've, you've got a scribe. Yeah, so I, I, you're, you're correct. And there are not enough scribes 
Um, right. They all seem to, and they are a very transient workforce. Yes. Uh, one to two years because they're going to medical school most of the time, right? So artificial intelligence, though, would be a way, and there are um, there are a number of vendors out there that are that are helping to try to make it. It what. However, we can right now, I mean, we're talking short term, however, right mm -hmm. now in the short term, we can decrease administrative burden. Um, I do also believe that with regard to those longer term electronic medical record decisions, uh, one of the things that I've helped to lead in my institution is really getting the physicians at the table and the nurses at the table with future decisions around the electronic medical record. And just, yeah. I, I think that that kind of a mindset has to be present with almost every administrative process. So those, so those are some easy, quick wins. Another, another thing, and I wanna come back to Simon's question for a second. This is more on the therapeutic side, but the data suggests out of the AMA and other, and other national surveys that the workforce, bec the, the physicians in particular, uh, would greatly benefit from peer support programs and actually are asking for them over and above mental, you know, formal mental health intervention. There's a lot of layers of uh, reinforcers of stigma uh, regulatory areas, and I'll get to those in a minute. But I do believe that an easy thing that needs to happen across the country, and we've seen this most recently in the military, where they have scaled these peer, peer buddy programs. Again, not a replica or not a replacement for mental health counseling, but again, something that I believe every, ho every hospital health system, every medical group in this country can deploy. It doesn't require a whole bunch of cost. These are just ways that we need to demonstrate to the organization uh, and to those who, who work in it that it's a, a different place. One other thing, and I'll mention it as well, and I've spoken to a number of CEOs in hospitals, physician CEOs, who, who, who have moved the needle on this conversation. And to a person, they talk about, from a cultural perspective, that there needs to be a culture of innovation. And by that, what they mean is it is not a culture of no, it is a culture of yes, coming from the physicians in particular who work there. So if Simon, you were to come into your clinic one day and say, I've got an idea about how to make this thing work better, you having permission and then the authority to actually make whatever that is happen is huge. That's lean management 101 is what it is. It's enabling people closest to the problem to create solutions and then implement those solutions. So that culture of innovation also is something that I know will make a, a more of a short-term but immediate impact on, on the workforce. Uh, you know, to that point, I, 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 I'm somebody who really likes change in that way. Um, and, um, you know, we did a really good job through COVID of accelerating some change. Um, our hospitals proved that they could ramp up IT really quickly. We haven't learned quite so well how to keep that going in the everyday uh, area. And then the other thing I don't think we've done well there is we haven't done a good job of giving the resources to clinicians who have the ideas. And I always say to the clinicians who come to me, like, I'm going to ask you your ideas, but I'm not going to make you implement those changes because right. it's sort of like punishing the person who's got right. the idea, right? You've got this idea of ways that we can make your life better. Now spend your nights and weekends fixing it yourself for nothing. That's right. <laughs> and, and so that's a key part that I think we have to fix as well. Yeah. And this is, it's one of those things I, I always think it's um, autonomy and latitude, but it's also autonomy and latitude with top cover. Somebody who's got your back, who's breaking down the barriers, who's using their executive throw weight to move things that you can't move. And so to that end, you know, all the solution here is a top down and bottom up. 
So right. you've got to have the top of the organization, as you said, Wendy, knocking down those barriers, prioritizing budget dollars <laughs> to those solutions, prioritizing resources. So it's not just one more thing uh, mm -hmm. that the physicians have to use. There was a, a, a colleague of mine years ago who referred to the way that we manage in healthcare as the peanut butter principle, as we spread yeah. people as thin <laughs> as we possibly can, exactly. and we can just try to keep spreading them over that piece of bread. And, and the, that, but that's not a sustainable solution. Um, you know, and just, just, just really quickly on this idea around a culture of innovation, if every hospital in this country were to have an innovation competition tomorrow that said, give me your best five ideas. Give, we're gonna, we want the best five ideas about how to make this place work better. We're going to give you a monetary reward. You probably wouldn't even have to do that, frankly. You just have to implement. And we're going we're gonna to go through a process and we're going to cultivate those best five ideas, prioritizing scalability of the idea, prioritizing the impact on the workforce. That, you know, those are the kind of things that, that can help flip and then generate that momentum. Because I think that once we have the momentum and those who are decision makers over budget dollars and processes see the power of engaging those closest to the problem in solving it and engaging the workforce and really helping the workforce feel valued and heard, it will, it will be impossible to turn back. You know, that's it, the the point you make is is very interesting, and I am often floored when people say to me, "Oh, these things are so expensive to do. It's really expensive for us to make these changes." But I think the question that sometimes comes up is, "How expensive is it for us to not do this stuff? Exactly. How costly is it for us to turn over our workforce, have our workforce leave early, or 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 worse?" And I think we we're missing the message when we worry about the cost of some of these interventions. Well, yes, and. Uh, we also know the cost of turnover of a nurse is incredibly expensive. The cost of a turnover of a physician is expensive. The, the cost of having to hire a traveler or a locums to, to replace, those are incredibly expensive. And now the cost of the impact of quality of care, which we haven't talked about, right. is also incredibly expensive. Not just your, not just your monetary cost from you know, decreasing the payment from the federal government or whomever, but also your reputational risk. How many how many hospitals and health systems are moving around on that U.S. News and World Report uh, ranking because of their decreased quality scores this year? Right. Tell me those aren't those things are not correlated. I, and I, I would say that there's no chance. So. Yeah. So, again, I, I think there are there's a million reasons why we need to do it. Um, yeah. And and my hypothesis in this is that now now that the business case has been made, now we need to bring those tools to 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 help can we talk a little bit about the 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 really high level structural things the systems things that um that are that are not necessarily in the control of the individual clinician or or even in the control of the the executives in the hospital but that we maybe all should be thinking about and working towards so so absolutely um I think that, first of all, some of the major systems changes that we need to make are around, I mean, the, the whole reimbursement, well, let me, let me not go to reimbursement just yet because that's a bigger, bigger, bigger thing. Let's go to, let's go to employment contracts for doctors for a minute. That's yeah. one that's in the sphere of influence and control of the local hospitals or the employer of the physicians. Um, the, this productivity, um, the productivity-based contracts, again, that's another one that was highly correlated with burnout in the mm -hmm. 2018 Harvard Public School, uh, School of Public Health 
um, report. So let's go there. Um, that's one that, that that absolutely needs to needs to change. Um, another one that that again, and, and Wendy was was nodding when I said uh, fee for service reimbursement. I mean, they're related to this concept of employment contracts, right? The eat what you treat. Some doctors I've heard say eat what you kill. I don't feel as a lawyer for the doctors. I don't feel like <laughs> they should be term. saying that. I should yeah. say I like eat what you treat. But and, and and look, we understand that healthcare is a business. There's nobody here who's not going to say you know no margin, no mission. At the same time, we've got with the pendulum has swung too far. So how do we appropriately balance compensation and and this push for productivity? Because this push for productivity is what's what's creating this peanut butter principle that is now now we're 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 done here. Yeah, so so, the, I, so yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I mean, I, I whenever I hear the peanut butter principle, I always think, yeah, at some point the bread tears. I was going to say and that. We're at, well. the, and we're at the point where the bread is tearing. <laughs> it does. Right? Yeah. It does. And, but to Simon's point earlier, which I thought was a brilliant one, and not just because he paid me a million dollars to be on the <laughs> podcast, but because, the, 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 or actually, Wendy, I think you made the point, which was the, um, the concept of this workforce that's always going to show up and the mm. workforce that's always going to be there. I just, don't, I just don't know that we have that. I also believe, related to it, the expectation of the newer generation is way different. And I've heard it from medical students and nursing students alike. So that's going to be another wake up call when the medical students and nursing students get out of their residency and go into training. And they're like, I'm not doing this. Like, no way. If you told me that going into nursing or medicine doubled my chance of suicide, you know, compared to the normal, the, the average population, why would I, why would I do this again? And I was going to work time and a half at a job that is just agonizing. Right. So, so one of the interesting things that we think about a lot is that the house of medicine seems divided into the administrative side and the clinical side. And each side is doing its level best to do the thing that it was trained to do. So the administrators are trying to keep the organization alive. The clinicians are trying to keep the patients alive. The problem is that they're working towards two different goals with two different sets of ethics, and they're not talking to each other. So what's the way that we build those bridges and help them come together to co-produce the solutions that we need? Since we have an MBA. I, I'm going <laughs> to step in for a second and apologize oh, to Corey that we are, we are hammering him yeah. with oh. difficult no, no, questions no, no, because no, he has an MBA, but, <laughs> but we do want to hear your answer. Believe me, anyone can download the certificate online. It's, no, I'm kidding. My, 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 the Darden School business would, is shriveling right now. No, I, I, I think that um, to Wendy's point, Actually, do me a favor, Wendy. Restate your question now that, I, now that I've... Yeah, no, so this is not meant to be putting you in a hot seat because I, I really think that, that we are each doing our level best. So business folks who graduate from business school have trained in a certain set of ethics. They have a certain goal of keeping the organization alive, right? The margins. Um, clinicians are doing their best to take the best care of patients. But sometimes those two things are in conflict and we don't do a great job of reaching across that, you know, that divide. And so what I'm wondering is what's the best way to approach reaching across that divide so that we can co-produce better solutions? So, so I believe healthcare now more than ever is a team-based sport. You have to have 
almost every decision except the clinical one, and I don't want to have anything to do with the clinical decision. Um, I think that the, the decisions around allocation of resources, budget, et cetera, they need to be, th th this needs to be a partnership between the physicians and the administration. And, and it needs to be viewed as such. It can't be that the physicians are just replaceable widgets in this, yeah. it, 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 and, and that they can, um, the, the, well, patients come to hospitals because those hospitals have fantastic physicians and nurses. Sometimes they come because of the bricks and mortar, but mostly because of the reputation of the clinicians who work there. And I think that sometimes administration thinks about it, as you just described, Wendy, is these are, these are at odds with each other. I have seen when you bring the teams together and you co-create goals and you co-create strategy and then goals, and co-create budgets, the things that people butt heads about. I mean, a lot of times it's dollars and resources. But right. when that's co-created in a transparent way, where you where everyone sees, you know, the that doubles, you know, the hidden margin. I think a lot of folks think that in the CFO's office of these hospitals, there's a, a drawer with endless gobs of money. Doesn't <laughs> that drawer doesn't exist? I've looked. Believe me, when the CFO of UVA was out of the office, I went and looked in all of his drawers. <laughs> There was, they were empty. They were empty. There were some, some golf balls that, that were, uh, hadn't been used, but the, the drawers were empty. So, so to that point, why, why does this have to be um, an us versus them? I think it needs to be a we, but, yeah. but a lot of that, that, there's some vulnerability in that, and there's, there's trust that's required. But if you're, if you're looking at, about prioritizing, again, you, if your approach is to prioritize the workforce over the end product, the patient, that dynamic changes. It's really only when you're not thinking about the workforce and only thinking about the patient that, that it, it's skipped over. That, and, and to that point, I have heard repeatedly this year more than ever, I'm not sure there's a CEO of a hospital out there who doesn't get it now. Maybe they didn't get it before, but right now it's right in their face. And so I, I think that th this is, again, the time that we need to put some of these processes in place, um, the prioritization of the, of the workforce in place, the, this team-based culture in, in place to really move forward together. Because let's also be clear, all of those administrators are also have been working tireless hours as well. They've had to make some yeah. of the hardest business decisions of their life with little to no information. Right. And so I think we all kind of also need to give each other a little bit of a break here and just say, you know what, this has been really horrible. Healthcare has gotten just completely the, 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 the brunt end of COVID. Mm -hmm. We've been, we've had to take, we were, it was, bro it was, it was breaking if not broken before. The pandemic, then we had to sustain the clinical um, and the research loads of the pandemic. Now it's back, by the way, but for a short period of time, everyone was like, oh, we're out of this. And that same workforce is already super tired. Now you've got to get us out of the financial crisis that every hospital in America is in. But now we're now we're back to COVID. But as soon as COVID's done, it'll be looking to the, again, that same workforce. Everyone's just tired. And everyone yeah. needs to come together and just say, recognize it and say, this isn't an us versus them. This is a we 
and let's move this together um, towards the betterment of the institution and ultimately the, the patients. And, and, and to recognize perhaps that there's always something, right? When COVID's over, there'll be a financial crisis or a stock problem or something that is a reason why we can give ourselves an excuse not to do something. But there's, 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 there's going to be a need for us to continue this, this kind of dialogue, this kind of um, team approach, no matter what the problem ahead of us is. Correct. And the, and the whole idea of each of us being curious about what the pain points of the other are is really the only way that we can move forward. You know, if clinicians have to be just as curious about what the executive pain points are as the executives need to be about clinicians. I, I, I love what you just said there, Wendy, and let me, just, let me just give you an example. So we've had a couple chief innovation officers, or not, I'm sorry, chief IT, not innovation, chief mm -hmm. IT officers at, at the University of Virginia since we implemented the electronic medical record. And only the most recent one actually came to the physicians and said, sheepishly, I didn't realize that, that what I do every day had such a negative impact on you. How can I work and change the way that we operate to your betterment? And it was like, yeah, it was like, <laughs> wow, I can't believe this is now the conversation. Where's this conversation been for a decade, by the way? thinking that, but let's just keep, now we've got her attention, let's move forward together. We've redesigned the way that we're working together, prioritizing and really listening to each other um, mm. and, and really just valuing that opinion. So this is the other thing we talk about a lot is, is flipping the script. So typically in, in the typical healthcare system right now, the clinician is reportable to a lot of different sectors of the organization. So to finance and risk management and IT and all those others. What are you doing to make sure that your patient is safe, that your risk is minimized, that you're billing it appropriately, blah, blah, blah. What if we were to flip that script and say, what is IT safety, risk management, billing doing to make the clinician's job easier? How can I support you to be successful today? Absolutely. One of the things that I've done at the University of Virginia Physicians Group is I've given, we in our annual goals process, for all of our administration, I've created goals around the reduction in waste uh, to the clinicians is exactly that point. It's how can you in everyday life reduce the burden on the clinicians? Now measure it and tell me how many hours of non-value added time that you were able to eliminate for vision. That's how you understand the connection between your, what you're doing and, and their life and their livelihood. So, yeah, there's, there's, and I've heard of other, other organizations that have taken that pajama time measure, which is the measure of time before and after work that you're in the electronic medical record, and they've tied it to the executive compensation of the entire leadership team. <laughs> wow. Um, yep. I just, I think I just, I'd get fired if they did that. <laughs> you know what? As the CEO of the UVA Physicians Group, I just did that. I just said our, our, our entire management team is now at risk and we're, you can bet everyone's like, hold on a minute. How can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And that's, yeah. and that's, that's brilliant. That's exactly what we keep saying. Amazing work, Corey. Yep. Thank you. Um, we'll see how, it, I'll let you know in a year how, it, how, how it goes, but you know what? It's, it's important because you, it, well, it's critically important for all the reasons we've said today. Yeah. yeah. So are there initiatives that people who are listening 
can get involved with, can help you to lift up? Absolutely. Two come to mind that are significant. The first is the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act is the first of its kind piece of federal legislation that will really lay the groundwork for this work at a federal level moving forward. Uh, the legislation has passed the Senate um, unanimously. It is with the House Energy and Commerce Committee in the House of Representatives and needs to be voted on by the House Energy and Commerce Committee so that it can go to the House floor. Anyone out there who has a member of Congress on the Energy and Commerce Committee, or just a member of Congress, so that's all of you, <laughs> should write and ask them to co-sponsor the legislation. When I last looked at it, we had over 115 co-sponsors in the House. Um, that's the formal endorsement. We have now over 80 large healthcare organizations and associations that have signed on as well. Um, but we are right at the precipice of this. So, so reaching out immediately to your member of Congress and asking her or him to co-sponsor the bill. And if they happen to be on the Energy and Commerce Committee to vote on the bill so that it can move on and we can sign this um, into law, that would be huge. The second thing is that um, I have uh, launched a nationwide initiative called L All in Wellbeing First for Healthcare. And it is an initiative focused on all the issues we talked about today um, with a number of very large um, national organizations. And our idea there is to accelerate the adoption of tried and true or tried and tested tools um, to support the well-being of the workforce across the healthcare industry right now. If individuals would like to be involved in that, um, organizations would like to be involved in it, they can find out more information at allinforhealthcare.org, allinforhealthcare.org. So uh, we, have a, we have over 200 organizations who've already committed to, um, to the program, and uh, we're bringing free resources to um, the healthcare community, and we've got a great steering committee of collaborating organizations who are making sure that the tools that we're suggesting and the marketplace of tools that we're sharing are are um, really um, well, well curated and will make the impact that we need. The final thing I would say, and we didn't talk about this a lot today, is the concept of mental health and the structural barriers to mental health. Um, in my work over the last two years, I have seen at least six significant structural barriers to mental health that apply to physicians. And um, I'm about to publish a piece in US News and World Report, which identifies those six structural barriers and calls on all hospitals in this country to deliver to their um, workforce, particularly the physician workforce, their own report card on separating facts versus myths of where they stack up a very tangible thing that hospitals and health systems can do, a very tangible thing that your listeners can do if they're involved in hospitals and health systems to help just separate fact from fiction. And then when they identify what, whether there are structural barriers in their own organization or in their state, do something about it. Um, the Feist family can't do it alone. Uh, we are in this for the long term. We are in this uh, to make a an immediate and a long-term impact, and we need everyone's help. 
So they can also reach out to me at Corey at drbreenheroes.org and find out about us on drlornabreen.org for more information about our foundation. Great. And we'll, we'll put all of those links into the, into the show notes so that people can find them. Great. Thank you so much, Corey. That's um, fabulous to hear what you're doing, but for me, even, even better to hear about all the opportunity out there and the thoughts you've got as a leader in this area. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful, uh, Wendy and Simon, to be on the show today. Uh, this is such an important conversation and this podcast and your show is is hitting it right at the right time. So thank you so much for having me. And, and I've so greatly appreciated the partnership with both of you um, over the last 18 months. So thank you both. Uh, Our pleasure. pleasure. Take care. Well, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios with logistics and coordination support from Kenzie Burkhart and Nikki Krauss. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation when you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, as are all the links that we talked with Corey Feist about. So you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for other listeners to find us. Thank you for listening. And stay well.